It's November 16th, 2020. This is Rook. Let's reserve the word icon to only be used when it is truly deserved. But there is no questioning that today's guest on our program is an Iranian icon. He is a master in his field who is one of the pioneers of Iranian modern art and almost single-handedly created freestanding Western-style sculptures within the Persian tradition. Parviz Tanavoli has been an artist of note for over 60 years around the world, and his sculptures, paintings, and collections are internationally celebrated. This is a rare feature interview with an Iranian-Canadian legend, Parviz Tanavoli. These are conversations from, to, and about the Iranian diaspora. I'm Gian Gomeshi. This is Rook. Hi there, welcome to episode number 62 of Rook. Hope you're in good spirits. We are on our ongoing mission to build a new audiovisual encyclopedia of Iranian diaspora identity. Coming to you on Instagram, YouTube, SoundCloud, Spotify, iTunes, and Telegram. You guys, it's such an honor to have the legendary sculptor, painter, scholar, art collector, Paravis Tanaboli coming up on this show. He'll be joining me in a few moments. I um, I rarely get this uh, this excited about a guest coming on. You guys know me. I mean, I'm I'm happy to have all these guests that we have on Rook, but uh, it's truly something I'm looking forward to, and I'm truly honored to have Paravis Tanaboli coming on the show. I don't know if you remember the first day that you asked me to come to the office and you want to explain to me that what is going to be wrong yes. you explained the idea and the only person that you mentioned that for example we have to interview with Parvis Tanavoli and yes. introduce yes. him to the, the young generation yes. and finally the day Yes. Yeah. So you're quitting after today? <laughs> we've, 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 now we've got him. That's it. Yeah, yeah. It's done. Well, I, let's see how the interview goes. You know, I have to say, I, it was about, uh, I think it was around 2005, I interviewed Paris Tanaboli. He, of course, has been back and forth from Iran. He was, he was in Iran uh, uh, until 1989. Of course, after the revolution, um, his studio was closed. He had a lot of trouble being the mm. prominent artist that he had already become through the 60s and 70s. Uh, so about 10 years later, he picks up and, and comes to, moves to Vancouver, Canada, uh, which was an interesting choice. I want to ask him about that because, uh, you know, this is a man who was well known internationally, especially in the big art hubs like London or New York. Uh, so the choice to come and move to Vancouver was an interesting one. Um, but he's been back and forth since 
since then, uh, Vancouver and Tehran, and of course, all over the world where his art exhibitions take place. But I had the chance to interview him in 2005, and it was at his house in Vancouver. And um, it was, it, honestly, it was it is one of my favorite interviews I've ever done, mm-hmm. uh, just because he is, um, he's he's very poetic the way he speaks about his art the way he speaks about life the way he speaks about the world and um and uh, he, he i just felt uh, uh i was not just because of his iconic works but just the, just being in his presence being in his aura felt like such an honor such a treat i've always remembered that and uh i've seen him a few times since then but um you know that that was a very special occasion and so i've really wanted this opportunity to interview him again and and to have him on rook um as one of the the masters in the iranian diaspora and so yeah he's a piece of history so you you're quite on you should be honored (laughs) thank you kian docht just reminding you (laughs) <laughs> Thank you for reminding me I should be honored. I agree with you. I agree with you. Uh, he'll be joining us in a few moments. Listen, a special uh, shout out to Arjeng Zandnia. Arjeng Zandnia. He's a Canadian entrepreneur who advocates for Iranian art and culture. He's based in the greater Toronto area. His new latest venture is called Nahid Corporation, a high-rise development company dedicated to giving back through creating safe, sustainable, vibrant urban communities that enhance the standard of living for all residents. He's also an art collector. I know Arjang is really passionate about Iranian art and artists, and he's a great admirer of the works of Paravis Tanavoli and said it would be his honor to sponsor this episode. So we are grateful for that. Thank you to Arjang Zanya, although I... Uh, happen to uh, know based on social media and some interaction that he has awful taste in British football teams. Ah, I think he's a well, he's a Manchester fan or something. Oh. I don't I don't even want to know. I've I've suppressed it because I appreciate the fact that he cares about the Iranian community and art, but uh, he doesn't care about Arsenal. Uh-huh. Neither do I, really. What? Wow. Br- British soccer in general, the league, I, I don't know. I can't follow. <laughs> the World Cup is That's enough it, for Keon. me. You finally crossed the line. <laughs> All right. I'll walk myself out. <laughs> you have finally crossed the line. Uh, listen, uh, if you if, if you want to link to anything, uh, any of our content, our previous episodes, uh all of our platforms the hub of all things rook is our website rookmedia.com rookmedia.com our uh latest rook reads uh, our blog there is about the u.s election and our episode from uh it was episode number 59 where we discussed the iranian community and the u.s election this one's called u.s election change or same old for iran written by thoughtful nagin one of our team members here and um she speaks in this piece about what we explored in that episode, which is that uh, it's not just the United States that's polarized. <laughs> it's the Iranian-American community uh, is polarized as well in general, but certainly around the uh, they were around this election and the potential aftermath of it. Uh, if you want to re- read that, she asked some really interesting and profound questions in this piece again rookmedia.com to find our latest rook reads uh this time last week who did we have on the show mona no 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 yes you're right we had mona from melbourne Uh who is our she mona who's in australia and she runs the inglisi farsi instagram channel and she is teaching us persian proverbs each week on mondays we're gonna have her coming up 
uh, after Parviz Tanavoli, Mona from Melbourne. But who was on? Liraz Charhi. Oh. That's right. Liraz was on last week. Do you remember that, Keon? Yes, yes, I have. I know sometimes you don't remember. This very hints of memories. <laughs> yes. Somewhere there. And do you remember now who is Liraz? Tell the audience in case she they missed that episode. She is the Israeli Iranian singer actress. Um, just. Yeah, I think you are correct. I, think I covered it. Oh, yes, Bravo. and what was happening last week? What was the precipitant for bringing Liraz on? Uh, the album release. That's right. Zan wow. is the title. Zan is the album. So an Israeli uh, uh, singer, dancer, as you say, actress, uh, who's also in the series Tehran, amongst other things, um, who was going to put out this album of. Uh, entirely Farsi Persian material, mm -hmm. um, Persian songs. Uh, it was going to come out last Friday. Right. It did come out. It's called Zan. And uh, somebody just sent me a note today. It's the number one album in Israel. Really? Yeah. That's Isn't incredible. that great? Incredible. Yeah. Wow. I mean, I, this shouldn't be a surprise because, of course, we've talked about this. The cultures are there's there's so much. Uh, shared um, yeah. uh, culture and wisdom and 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 history between Iranians and and Israelis, but it's still interesting to hear that the number one album is an album of, of Persian Israeli. songs yeah. and uh, in and, Israel. Uh, and I, I think it was her appearance on Rook that yes. really I, threw it over know, the I, top. I really believe so. <laughs> For sure, it must have been. We're huge. <laughs> that's right. That's right. Isn't the that people of Israel listened to our the, that podcast and and. They were like, let's send this to number one. <laughs> Anyways, congratulations to Liraz. It was uh, lovely to have her on the show. And uh, and uh, what a great thing to have her record go number one. And I see she's been getting some great reviews, too, in the press around the world as well. It's incredible. Wow. You can go to that episode at our website, rookmedia.com, Keon. I'm not familiar. What is it again? <laughs> one more time? Listen, before we get to Pavis Tanavali, one, one more thing, which is that this afternoon, uh, Captain Reza and I made a little video and put it on Instagram with a skill testing question, which was quite easy, but nonetheless, a lot of people got it wrong about who is our iconic guest that we're going to have on this episode. I said the first five people to guess it, I would mention on the air. So here we go. We got five answers. Reza just handed this to me. Uh, Merdod Afra. Tara E. Seper, Mina, Mina Afra, <laughs> the entire Afra family, and uh, Hedi Rahmat. Thanks to the five of you for getting that right at our Instagram channel, at yeah. Rook Media. All right, Mona from Melbourne will be here uh, with the proverb of the week. We'll get to a lot more. Uh, see you in a little bit. The fabulous Keon, Captain Reza, and Groovy Shia. Let us get to our featured guest. He is a giant of modern art around the world, the father of Iranian modern sculpture. His works are the stuff of poignance, presence, and poetry. He is the man who almost single-handedly created freestanding Western-style sculptures within the Persian tradition. He's undoubtedly one of the greatest modern and contemporary artists of Iran. Parviz Tanavoli is a sculptor, a painter, scholar, and art collector. His works have sold for millions of dollars and are on permanent display at major international institutions such as the British Museum, the Met, and the Tate Modern. He's the author of numerous books on art and artists in Iran and the Middle East. You might say Parviz's collections and publications are contributions to preserving the history of Iranian art that are as valuable as his contemporary works. 
He currently resides between Vancouver and Tehran. He was born in 1937 in Tehran and was one of the very first students to graduate from Tehran's School of Fine Arts in the 1950s. Following further art studies in Italy, Parviz returned to Iran and established a studio, Atelier Kaboud, which became the birthplace of one of the most significant movements in Iranian modern art, the Sakokhane movement. It was during this time that he conceived of the first of his iconic Hitch collection, based on the Persian word for nothingness. Paviz also has a storied career as a teacher. He taught at the Minneapolis College of Art and Design and spent 18 years as director of the sculpture department at the University of Tehran from 1961 to 1979. He has held acclaimed solo exhibitions as well as numerous group exhibitions on three continents, including at Olympic Park in Seoul, Korea, the Qatar National Museum, the Royal Scottish Museum, the Museum of Modern Art of Vienna, the Museum of Modern Art in New York, the Tate Modern in London, and numerous other other prestigious venues around the world. His forthcoming book is called A Virus for Collecting. It will be published soon. And news also came out this week that Parviz has donated a collection of his Persian flat weave rugs and carpets to the Cultural Heritage Tourism and Handicrafts Ministry in Iran. We will get to that. But first, the great Parviz Tanavoli joins me from Vancouver, Canada today. Hello, sir. Hello, Jan. Good to hear you. Last time we spoke, how long was it? It was 15 years ago? Well, well, you know, I've seen you since then a couple of times, but the last time we did an interview, you're absolutely right. It was was 15 years ago. And actually, I was going to start there, Paravis John, because I have the fondest memory of this interview we did at your home amidst your sculptures about 15 years ago. And I remember going into that thinking, am I going to be able to relate to this legendary Iranian artist. I was intimidated. And then I left after the interview, having felt just how poetic and profound your warmth and your messages are. And I was, when I was researching this interview for today, I came across you saying, actually, that you don't like labels, but you are okay with being called a poet. And that made sense to me, having uh, experienced you before in the past. But for others who see you as a sculptor or a visual artist, why are you a poet? Well, I consider myself more a poet than a sculptor, but poet working with different material. Uh, The base of all art to me is poetry. And poet works with words, painters work with uh, colors, sculptor works with volumes and material. And since we, we never had any sculpture tradition in Iran before, but had a very strong poetry tradition, I feel I am a, a follow-up of those poets of Iran, hmm. because I, I feel my sculptures are based on their poetry, like, poets like Rumi, like Hafez, like Nezami, and that's why I consider the theme of my sculpture is, is poetic. Your poetry comes through your hands. That's right. <laughs> when I work, actually, it's based on, on poetry that is in my mind. And in my, in my mind, these poets are like singing, are like reciting. 
So do you see though? See already you've thrown me off track. You, you say something. I knew this was going to happen, and I want to. I want to discover it. So do you see poetry in your mind, and you translate that into a um, an image, a sculpture, a a a, a form? Exactly. Yes. Yes. You said it. In my mind, there is a poet moving, working, and all I do, I like to give it, give it a birth, give it a volume, give, bring it into, into the world. But when you bring it into the world, it's no longer moving. Is that frustrating? It's no longer moving, but, but I try my best to make it as as much possible to, to give the the poetic meaning. Of course, my sculptures are not moving, but they, they do have some meaning behind them. Of course. And I want to get to that and how you basically started this new, uh, a new strand of modern art for Iran and for the world. Um, but let's start with this collecting, because this is the thing that you seem to be most obsessed with recently. You've got this book coming out, A Virus for Collecting. You've just donated uh, this, this collection. So let me start there. If we continue with the notion that you're the poet, why does a poet get obsessed with collecting? Is there a connection between the poet and you and this virus, as you've called it, for collecting art? Yes, yes, there is. There is a strong connection uh, because my the collection, my collection, are my material, my inspirations. I didn't collect the kind of things that they don't inspire me. They don't talk to me. I only went after objects that they they talk to me. They inspire me. You know, not having a sculptural tradition in Iran, objects are have replaced that. Handmade objects, locks, doorknobs weaving carpets of all kinds and these have replaced the the three-dimensional sculpture and these are like my my material to look at i got it to work with but but perhaps john that you can you can be inspired by them you don't have to collect them you i mean collecting suggests that you want them in your arena you want you want to have a piece of them uh, is that part of the inspiration to actually own them well you know once i i collect these things i like to learn more about them i study them i like to know who made them and when was when they were made and so at the end it comes like a research and this research of course ends up to be to be accumulated to a, all all of these pieces accumulated in a book as a collection and so i've written uh, two dozens of books on my collection already yes you know uh if, if you don't mind me asking getting a little bit philosophical on this uh, note of collecting i mean you did have this exhibition virus f- uh, of collecting last september you have this new book coming out by the same name i was privy to reading the introduction to it you sent it to me and you talk about how you've always been a collector even as a little kid in iran you were collecting you know bottle caps and things but it occurs to me that collecting uh now you can correct me if i'm wrong but it's also curating you know uh, collecting is a form of curating in which case you would be both the artist and the curator is that a paradox somehow no 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 that's you you said it very well collecting is like curating and in fact it's curating and for me is that the the third dimension is creating after that i don't copy my pieces from my collection i get inspiration from them and if you look at my sculpture 
they are all based on Iranian material, not not followed any of Western sculptures. Yes. I respect Western sculpture, I love them, and I like many of favorites among them, but my sculpture is not after the, any of these Western sculptors. You know, there's a sort of br- breaking news element to this uh, interview be- that I wasn't expecting because um, uh, we're, we're kind of doing a lifetime interview. But the news has just come out, as I mentioned in the introduction, that you have just donated a collection of your Persian flat weave rugs and carpets to the Cultural Heritage Tourism and Handicrafts Ministry. This is a total of 1,400 rugs or so, including some woven by Iranian nomads. Tell me about this decision of yours. Well, you know, I enjoyed collecting during the last uh, half a century or more, and I, I did my job with them, and I, I like them to other to look at them and, ins- and uh, get inspiration and enjoy them. It's a pity to disperse them, to send them around, uh, or, or to get rid of them, or in any, any ways of selling or whatever. And I like them to be all together in a museum, but I, I don't have ways of, I, my idea, my dream was to make a museum myself, but I cannot do it at this time. So I asked the government to do it, and they are going to do it for me. And not to be indelicate about this, but do you trust the government? I mean, you haven't always had the greatest relationship with the with the authority. At some point, they took away, they confiscated your art in your Tehran home. At another point, there were some issues with your street art. Do you do you know that this art is going to go into the right places? I hope so. I hope so. But I mean, the people I'm working with, they are. I know them. They are they're good good people. They are, you know, museum people, and these museum people, I trust them. I hope they, they remain. That's the problem with Iran. You don't know who, who's going to remain, who's going to go. But if they remain, I, I, I would be, my, my mind would be at rest. Can I just, when you, when some of these rugs, when you talk about part of this collection, which is massive, I mean, this is quite a donation on your part, some of them woven by Iranian nomads. For example, where would you come across those, those pieces? All of them are woven by Iranian nomads and villagers. I travel throughout Iran in every village, country, every countryside, all tribal areas, and have collected this one by one, and not through the tribes or through the villagers, but many through the dealers. And since 50 years ago, I've been buying these pieces and accumulating uh, the collection, making it completed. So there are collections of Kilim, there are collection of Gabbet, there are collection of uh, salt bags, collection of Mafrash. There are about two, 25 or 30 collect, different collections altogether. You talk about this these this collecting you just said a moment ago, this being about inspiration for you. But I, I feel like it's about a lot more than that. It's about it's a, it's about carving out a place in history for these artists. I mean, you own this rare collection of art from great artists, and in some cases, folks you've worked with, Sohrab Seperi, Bahman Mohasses, Hossein Zenderudi. Um, is part of the where you're going with this, especially when we see you donating this to museums, a desire for you to play a role in indexing, in, in showcasing, in excavating Iranian artworks for the world to see? Well, yes, that's that's a small contribution. My uh, modern art collection that I I, I did. Uh, it's not a, a a big collection. It's a 
a modest collection, but these were all my contemporaries, my friends. Most of them we exchanged when we were together, when we had exhibitions. And uh, so they are, they are very mem mem memorable to me. And of course, I, I'm, I'm very proud that I have kept them. And now I, I exhibit them and I hope they all go together at the same, at, 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 in a museum or in a collection, remain the same. Where are they, Parvis? Are they in Canada or in Iran or where? where? They are in Iran. They're all they in Iran. Uh -huh. Yes. I don't even know the answer to this. Is, is it possible to, you know, if you wanted to exhibit that collection in New York, is it, is it easy to bring them from Iran? I, I hope so. I don't think why not. I mean, if, 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 if it's not for sale, I think I'm allowed to bring them. But I don't know Iran. You know how Iran is. <laughs> they change the regulation all the time. Yes. So you don't know what's, what's going to be happen next time, next day. <laughs> So speaking of Iran and you know your your journey uh, as an as an Iranian kid I, I I wanted you to take us back to how this commitment to art began for you. We talked about um you you know you, you being a collector even when you were 4 years old, 5 years old. You know Parvis there's a lot of media about you over the years. Obviously there's documentaries, stories, interviews, but actually not a lot about your childhood. And, you know, most specifically about how I was thinking of your parents and how they would allow a kid, you know, in the 1940s in Iran to pursue art. And then in the 1950s, even to go to Milan as a young man to pursue art. Was it obvious to everyone that you were supremely talented in this field when you were a child? I don't think so. No, I was just lucky. I had the parents that they, they trusted me and they let me do what I want, and uh, that's why they weren't in art. My parents weren't in art. I, we, we didn't have any fun in art in our family, in fact. But I was the first one. But they let me do it, and I did it. They didn't question you, like, Pavijan, what are you talking about? You need to become a Mohandes? <laughs> <laughs> yes, yes, I, I cheated my parents. I said, I'm going to become a doctor, and I came back doctor in a sculpture. <laughs> <laughs> Perfect. <laughs> my mother always said, do a sculpture, get sick. What kind of a doctor you are? <laughs> <laughs> well, you heal a lot of people with your artworks, that's for sure. <laughs> So you return from Italy in the 1960s, as the story goes, after doing, you know, uh, art and having your, your awakening in Milan and in Italy. And you become fascinated and obsessed by the fact that, as you mentioned earlier in, in this interview, Iran has no tradition of sculpture. You've just come from a country in Italy that has a continuum of great sculptures. And even if in Iran we had beautiful mosques and designs and, you know, locks and tools, we don't have this tradition of sculpture. So you set out to change things and do something new. How did you dare to try something like that, that something that didn't really even exist in our cultural homeland? Well, I tell you, when I come, came back from Italy, I, w I was first very much influenced by Italian art. I was like half Italian myself, my, 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 my dressing, my attitude, everything. Uh, I was so fascinated by Italian culture. But then when I learned, uh, I went to our bazaars, I went to our villages, I went to our shrines, mosques, I realized how rich we are. And bit by bit, I got rid of it. And of course, uh, you have to have a courage to do that. And I had plenty of that. 
Well, actually, I want to ask you about courage. Uh, first of all, tell us why you needed so much courage. Oh, because people didn't understand it. People even uh, thought I make mockery of history. Because when I made, uh, for instance, Shirin Farhad or Leilian Majnun in, in junk sculpture. Yes. They, the people revolt against me. They were angry. They said, yes. they said am I making a joke? But they, they didn't, they had not seen new material. They had seen all in these stories in miniature, beautiful Persian miniature or carpet. You know, Iranian always liked fine art, very fine things, fine, finely woven rugs, fine miniatures, fine tapestries, and so forth. And my sculptures were all rough, are, are uh, how do I say, grotesque. And so it was e- not easy for their eyes to, to digest it. Right. And, and let me just explain what you just what you were just referencing for those who may not be familiar with some of these pieces. When it came to human and animal images, you you soon created this new kind of anatomy, a new kind of anatomy in your character, something different from say the Renaissance anatomies. And, and what you created was not, as you say, was not received very well at first. But you persisted. I mean, it's amazing that you did. And I I say this with utter respect. But does it take a certain kind of supreme confidence to be an artist that pushes boundaries and does something new. You said, I've built my own world, built my own vocabulary. That's quite audacious. Do artists need audacity to be able to break new ground? Well, uh, dear Jean, not all artists have to have the same route, the same, uh, the same pattern. Each artist decides, has his own pattern or her own pattern. I decided to have this pattern for myself, and this is not a pattern that I could be uh, used by others. Probably nobody else would like it even. But I did and followed up. I had my hard, hard years, hard, hard times. It, it's all over. And but the time came that people understood me. They, 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 they realized that I'm not joking. I'm serious about it. <laughs> I'm uh, grateful that you were bold enough to keep going. This makes me want to return to the question of courage, though. And I was asking you about that pivotal period when you returned from Italy and you start to really put your stamp on the world in Iran and, and where you got the courage to persist with new artist ideas, even when they were unpopular, even when they flew in the face of tradition. You were a young artist. How did you find the strength to not succumb to popular opinion or convention and instead to follow your own artistic path? Well, I don't know where I got it, but uh, I, I had plenty of courage and I had plenty of energy and I really uh, meant to do what, whatever I did. I believed in it. And I was so excited doing it. I couldn't wait to, to produce more and more sculptures. And of course, as I mentioned to you, not all of it was uh, received uh, warmly or friendly. But still, I, did, I wasn't encouraged to, to continue. It was a period of time that, you know, I was flourishing. I was, I don't know how do I say it. I was getting... Uh, uh, more and more creative uh, because every day I went I went to the bazaars uh, I got ideas I went to copper bazaar I got ideas I went to um, blacksmith bazaar I got ideas I went to junkyard I got ideas I, I mean Iran was like um, a mine of uh, treasure for me a mine of 
ideas and I couldn't wait to to put my hand on any all of them. Wow. That's how I got, I was busy every day. I was busy every day doing and I felt I was I was always behind although I was I was not uh, wasting any time but I was behind my ideas. What do you mean you were you were behind? Because I couldn't fulfill them. I couldn't I couldn't do all of them uh, the way I wanted. Right, you had so many in your yeah. I was bombarded by ideas. I was bombarded by uh, all those uh, beautiful sites I was seeing and I got ideas and as as I, as I told you uh, Iran was untouched by them and right, still right. today uh, it, nobody had done anything on those I mean and it's I, undoubtedly it was a fertile period for you but again I mean I, I don't want to belabor the points but if you're but if you can take your mind back to that those moments when you for example when you're you're sculpting anatomies that have not been created before I guess I I how in in that moment did you know that that was okay that you could be that uh, audacious as i said before well you see i was aware of the sculpture internationally uh, I, while i was in europe i had gone i was going to see exhibitions i was going to see uh, galleries and artist studios so the courage I got it maybe from there that uh, there is no end for an artist to create his ideas and there is no limitation and no no censorship in your own studio but I also had the faith I had the faith that this is the right thing to do although they were different but I had the faith that I'm doing the right thing as you started to get well known in Iran as a young groundbreaking artist did that put pressure on you to have to perform a certain way to have to deliver the goods to have to be a, a certain kind of artist well i mean to certain extent sometimes maybe it does because you uh, especially in those days was very conservative i, I mean uh, the people who were more interested they were aristocrats and upper class and those those were more conservative and they they did not open up so easily and of course, ordinary people weren't even uh, interested in that that much. Uh, but a, a young group of students were my followers, really. Uh, uh, so these were serious, and they they were following me everywhere, I, uh, everything I did. And among them, there were some who followed me and understood me, and they then became my follower. And that was good encouragement for me. I wasn't really afraid. You end up having this massive success with Heech. You're, you're a sculpture about nothingness that soon becomes a series for you. And and you may know, I don't know, you know, my life has mostly been in music. Uh, and so I think of it like a hit song. And um, I always wonder if, if, if musicians know when they've just written a hit song. Uh, and I wonder if when you completed Heech the first time, if you had any sense that this was going to connect with people and become this iconic piece for decades and decades forward. You don't believe it, Jian. Sheesh was the most popular item I made. I mean, one of the most popular sculptures was Sheesh. I didn't realize that it was going to be liked so much. From the beginning, it, it was liked by people, by ordinary people, but and was understood because the shape of it, the body of the Sheesh is, uh, is familiar to everyone, to every Iranian. And also it relates to our philosophy, our, our, you know, our poetry. 
So the hitch, well, I had no trouble to making hitches, and uh, that's why I continued making all these hitches, all these for fifty years. But you didn't, you didn't know it was going to be as popular as it was. No, I didn't know. Absolutely, I didn't know. I, I didn't know. I thought that the first one was the last one, <laughs> but it ended up. I have made thousands since then. Well, what about the decision to make thousands? I mean, it, you, you once said, I, I am a heech-making factory. <laughs> it pays for my whole living. Everyone has to have a heech. Rings, jewelry. What amazes me is they still want them. I'm quoting exactly. you there. I mean, exactly. the, well, the piece is iconic, but did, and, and, and I don't think anybody's ever blamed you for this, but did you ever worry about being somehow to be seen as commercializing your own art, that it would somehow dilute the magnitude of your creations? You, you know, it's not a thousand copies. Each one is original by itself. I mean, there are some small editions. There are some like five or six editions, maybe some of them, not all of them. But they, 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 I, turned, I changed the shape and I changed the material. I mean, some of them are made in silver, some in bronze, some in, uh, some are in paint some uh, by mixed media, neon, uh, and plastic, and also the size, also uh, the shape. It's amazing how this single board can, can have so many, so many variations, and still people can relate with it and read it. I'm, I'm, I'm not going to ask you about the meaning of nothingness because I know you've been asked that uh, for, for 50 years by in every interview. But I will ask you this. As time goes on, does your relationship with a piece of art like that, like in other words, Pavis Tanavoli today in, in 2020, do you see that piece of art the same way you would have seen it in 1970 or 1965? Well, this piece has become my best friend, you know. Actually, I'm I'm so used to it. I can I can create issues everywhere or in any any condition under any condition. Uh, now, of course, it's so popular now. As so many other people are liked it, so many admirers that I don't have that problem of explaining it anymore. People have have done. People do that by themselves. A poet have written poetry about my hitches. Other artists have been inspired by my hitches. The hitches have gone on to uh, t-shirts and to hats and and now on masks on uh, coronavirus masks. I, I noticed a lot of people wear hitches on masks. <laughs> Their masks. <is. laughs> wow! I have to get myself a hitch mask. That, that's I, a. I, I, I try to send you a picture. <laughs> I don't have any. <laughs> I mean, it makes sense. Why not a heat mask? That, uh, <laughs> yes. So it continues. You, you know, you, you mentioned that there's a, there's a cultural connection and a historical connection with that piece of art. And I want to ask you about being a, a, a de facto historian. I mean, it seems that your art and your work over the years has had various functions. Certainly one of them is creating groundbreaking art, but another one is uh, almost preserving Persian, Iranian images and, and, and history. And it's no secret that most of your your most profound work has been located in our cultural history, like Persepolis, I'm thinking, your wall of Persepolis that you made in 1975, which remains one of your most iconic pieces. And of course, it's well known for the remarkable record-setting price for which it was sold. But it, it's more than just a fancy art piece. It's about ancestry. How, how much, Paris, have you been 
driven by wanting to preserve, present, and spread Persian history. And I, and, and, and I suppose, how much does the artist have the role of being the historian? How much are you given in by that imperative? I mean, to tell you the truth, artist doesn't have any responsibility or it doesn't have to preserve. It's not artist's job to preserve the histor- history. Mm. It was not mine either. It was just my, I got my ideas from those uh, monuments and from Persepolis, for instance. First time I went to Persepolis, I couldn't, I was running from one, one corner to another. I couldn't believe it. Uh, and I, I got all kinds of ideas because it was not touched, I mean, uh, except in his history books. And that got me uh, to do something, to relate, I relate myself to Persepolis. And by relating myself, of course, I didn't want to copy images of Persepolis. That was not my job. Uh, and uh, all the people, whoever they do it, I think that they're doing craft job, not art, art job. Mm. I was inspired and I did my, my own uh, my own idea, my own concept, my my own vision. From but there, but there is an educational element to what you do. I mean, you your art teaches us about Persian history and culture, doesn't it? Yes, yes, of course. I mean, I was always interested in history too. Uh, that besides the point when I was studying history, I, of course, I wasn't an artist. I was just historian, and that was a serious matter. I, I had to study serious when I was writing. I was in a library. Uh, I, I wasn't doing the art job. I was just, I had to be like a, like a historian, uh, mark down the facts and uh, uh, my researches and so forth and my field works. It's different than being into, into the studio, which you are a free bird and you don't have any, any, any limitation, any, any censorship in your, in your studio. Uh, you know, uh, I mentioned the Persepolis, the Wall of Persepolis, and the the auction and the the record setting price. And, and I have to say, I mean, after all these years um, since our last formal interview, I, I'm doing the research on you, and I, I was quite astounded that almost every um, you know article about you or informational thing about you tends to cite the fact that your works have sold for record setting prices, and that you have this distinction of the pieces that have earned the most money in the of, of a Middle Eastern artist etc um, which of course is a distinction but I wonder about you and how much you uh, really actually care about that is it, it, do you do you celebrate do you do a fist bump in the air every time that, that record-setting money comes in or or is that just some icing on the cake that really isn't what this is about for you Listen, uh, Jian, that's a market of art. Market of art, which is very strong, of course, very strong. Most powerful fact in art, uh, modern art, is market. It's not anymore uh, newspaper critics or museum, but the market uh, kind of uh, decides about destiny of an artist and puts him in a different category. Yes, when I was, when I heard I, I broke a record, of course, I was happy. But uh, to tell you, the truth, I did, that money didn't go to my pocket. The piece belonged to a bank and uh, right. uh, had bought it ahead of time from me. But still, it benefited me a lot. It benefited a lot. I don't want to deny that. But I wasn't, I, I wasn't cheating myself by, uh, by believing that, you know, the high price is the best. 
Uh, I think that's market, and I I I, I don't deny it. I, it's uh, it's all right. It's one of the facts of the of the art to judge the art today, but uh, it's not everything. If if a piece of your art sells for a high amount. I mean, Heech comes to mind, obviously. The, 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 the market has d- determined that that's a very popular piece. Does it actually make the piece more valuable to you? Not, not really. Not to me. Not to me. To a lot of people, it does. To a lot of people, especially collectors. Collectors uh, like the numbers and the figures and so forth. Uh, and they, they follow the bar market. But not to me. I, I follow my own ideas sometimes. Uh, and in fact, when I, whenever I do something, it's not those that ha- have fetched highest. Uh, when I, the Persepolis fetched the highest price and broke a record, I didn't do more Persepolis. I switched to other things. Right. Not that I, not that I continue doing that. Pavis, let me ask you about the recent um, decades and coming uh, coming to the West, coming to Canada. You know, it, it, because it's been so much a part of our collective experience, the 1979 revolution in Iran, we tend to, at least in the Iranian community, uh, you know, kind of accept that it was a difficult time and, okay, everybody uh, had to endure it. Uh, but it, it profoundly changed lives, including yours, um, as a high-profile artist at the time. How difficult was the 1979 revolution and its aftermath for you, given that you were arguably in your artistic prime? It was not easy, Jean. Uh, it was very, very hard. It was very hard. I don't. I, I cannot deny it. It, it took me uh, several years to digest it because it was like a shock. Uh, but nevertheless, I uh, did not give up anything. Uh, I defend first ten years of the revolution, which I uh, we were stuck in Iran. I managed to work, uh, continue my work. I locked up myself in the studio. I hardly went outside. Outside was all the revolutionaries going back and forth, and with the slogans, revolution slogans. I did not uh, stop my work, but uh, of course it, it affected me and. Uh, uh, it came the time. The time came that we decided to leave Iran because there was no chance for me anymore. No galleries, uh, no exhibitions, and sending out my artwork was difficult. So we decided that it's not anymore uh, for me, and, and I, also for the future of my children. I have three children, and so we decided to come to Canada. And that wasn't easy. My 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 wife, my family, they were really crying when we left. Because we left a, a beautiful life in Iran, we put that behind and came here with empty-handed few handbags, and then that's all. But things built up again, built up again in Canada, and now everyone, everybody's happy. You, you were—I mean, you're, you're somewhat minimizing this. You were a star in Iran. And you were much more, more well-known in international hubs like London and New York. You come to Canada, to Vancouver, where I can only imagine that you, were, at least in the, in the early years, uh, when you came here in the early, say, uh, early 90s when you were here, etc., that you were living in relative anonymity, certainly compared to what you had in Iran. How was that for you personally? Well, nobody knew me when I came here, but I came because it was better ambience for my family. Uh, better uh, housing we could we, we could afford make better spaces uh, and uh, the schooling for my children and also you know Vancouver is, is beautiful city and very safe 
we all wanted really, my wife and I, we wanted to go to a safe city after having seen the revolution. We wanted to be in peace. So Vancouver was all right for that. But of, of course, it was uh, it was not the best place for an artist. Uh, at the beginning, I tried I tried my best to create an atmosphere, and uh, I built myself a studio. I worked, but the result was not as I expected. That's why I I went back to my own uh, connection to in London, in New York, elsewhere in Europe, uh, and in Iran. I was partly living here in Vancouver and partly uh, living in Iran in my studio uh, or in London or in Zurich or whatever, uh, European uh, cities that I had connection. And that made up for it. And in fact, we we managed to make up for the, all the, the shortages and uh, things worked out better, much better now. You know, um, you, you've, your star really has never diminished in Iran and in those international hubs and in the art world. And you've been back and forth to Iran over the years since you came to, to Canada. Uh, you've taught, you've had exhibitions in Iran. I want to fast forward to something that you did just a few years ago. Because it was the largest opening you've ever had in Iran. It was the Lions of Iran exhibition at the Tehran Museum of Contemporary Art. And I was reflecting on that. This is in 2017 and thinking, um, I wonder how this felt for you. In, in, in other words, did that feel like a culmination of so much you've you've worked for over the years to to come back the the celebrated and uh, artist favorite son and to have that big an opening yes yes that's exactly you said it yes it was uh, you know it was my dream that came true i wanted to have a big show of the lion in the art and culture of iran because i like lion myself and i've been producing lion uh, since uh, 60s for over 60 years uh, but not all the time, on and off. Uh, lion has a deep meaning in our culture, and from Mithraic time to Islamic and to present even. Even in is Islam religion, lion has a role. Uh, it's a symbol of the first Imam, Ali. So this continuity to me was outstanding. It was so exciting to see this continuation of some uh, I, some themes that throughout through the Iranian history uh, stands lively and vivid, and I managed to gather to get get together masterpieces from the Iran Museum, Tehran Museum collectors, and then my own work, which I had produced on lions. We managed to have a big show of lions. I mean, it was a type of the show that. Metropolitan or British Museum can, can organize that. Yeah. It was way bigger than my head, as we fashion say. <laughs> um, but I managed to do it, I curated it, and of course, I had collaboration of the people from the British Museum, from elsewhere. I had collaboration from Iranian Museum, from Iranian archaeologists, scholars, and uh, it ended up uh, beautifully and was was the most uh, visited exhibition 
uh, in the history of in the record left the record for the museum of contemporary art it's amazing it's it, it is a it's a beautiful story um, and at the same time, going to Iran back and forth has been somewhat fraught for you at times as well. In 2016, a day before you were due to speak at the British Museum, authorities in Iran confiscated your passport and prevented you from leaving the country. Again, two years ago, you were prevented from leaving Iran, and the Iranian authorities said your, they, they were taking your passport because your work creates anxiety. Um, <laughs> and, I, and I wonder how you... Uh, how you manage, how you navigate these moments where um, your passport is taken away, these difficulties, or quite frankly, how you're supposed to defend yourself against the charge of causing anxiety. <laughs> how can I defend? I couldn't. Uh, I, and I'm still under some uh, accusations, uh, like breaking the peace or uh, creating anxiety among the people. Anyway, uh, but, you know, uh, that's Iran. That's Iran today. I cannot change it. And, but uh, when I go to Iran, I have a low profile. I just go to my studio. I hardly get out and uh, work in the studio. My students come visit me. My friends come and visit me. I have my own heart in, in Iran. And uh, so not very much have social life, except, I mean, organizing some exhibition like that or my students. Or for my student, you know, it's like uh, leaving your father or mother, your parents, when when they scold at you. I I did not stop continuing my my activity in Iran because of the accusation they gave me, and of course uh, later on it was cleared. What about outside of Iran? It's it's been hard to avoid politics outside of Iran as well. You you have famously been called apolitical. You've certainly not made your art or your career about politics, but it seems like there have been times, especially in recent years, where the universe won't allow you to <laughs> to not be political. I, I'm thinking of the fact that you, you didn't visit New York when the MoMA was exhibiting some of your work after uh, Trump instituted the travel ban. Um, tell me about that decision and how, the, how difficult that was for you. Well, that was difficult because I wanted to go to that exhibition. I I meant to go that, to that exhibition, and I loved loved New York. And I, a visit to New York for me was uh, like a prize. Uh, but unfortunately, uh, that happened coincided with Trump's uh, decision on banning uh, Muslim countries to enter the U.S. I couldn't go. I couldn't do it. But uh, what could I do? I couldn't do anything. But the, the staff of New York, MoMA, luckily they, they were so kind, they informed me about what, whatever was happening, about the exhibition, sent me uh, news and sent me pictures. And uh, it was consoling a bit, but I couldn't change it. You've traveled a lot. You've gone from place to place a lot. And, and going back to where we started this conversation as we begin to, to end it, I, I want to ask you about being a collector and the nexus between being a collector and feeling attachment to material objects. Attachment. I think of you and I think of how, of how you're someone who has immigrated many times. First you left Iran to go to Italy. Then you left Italy to go back to Iran. Then you came to Canada. Then you went back and forth between Vancouver and Tehran. All these times you had to give up your studio. At, at times you had to give up some of your works, your tools. Uh, have you ever got used to the feeling of leaving emotional attachments behind? 
Yes, you you do. You cannot forget it, of course. I have a feeling. I I had a feeling, and uh, it was sad feeling, but I managed to keep myself busy whenever I I was away. I managed to switch to some other things, uh, to to go to libraries to study. When I was, uh, I didn't have access to my studio and my own my own objects, my own tools and uh, materials. I switched to other things. Uh, to my researches, for instance, uh, or to going to uh, around Iran to the tribes of tribal people. Uh, when my life was in danger in Tehran uh, at the beginning of revolution, because they, they you know, I, I liked by the, uh, by the, my, my work actually was liked by the former queen of Iran. And this was like a big, uh, big, big penalty for me. <laughs> Uh, they, not not just likes. She was a, a, a huge fan of yours and commissioned a lot of your work. Yes. Yes, she did, and in fact, th- that uh, became a, a good excuse for the revolutionary to attack me uh, and attribute me to the family of uh, royal. And they, well, I, so I didn't have any relation, but said he's re- related to royal family, and so uh, time came that I, my life was in danger. But I. I left, but I did, I did not leave, go and hide. I went to the tribal areas of Iran, which I loved, and I did other researches, and I came back full-handed. I, was, I didn't waste time. So is it fair to say that you're a collector, but you're not possessive about objects? Yes, you see, when I, when I find an object that it talks to me, when I buy it, I love it, and sometimes I carry it or I, I leave it on my bed. If it's a carpet or it's a gilim, or I leave it in my bedroom, I look at it and I get up and in the morning I, I'm pleased to have it. Uh, or it's a small object, I carry it in my pocket like a lock or something, a small object, uh, and I, I, I touch it and I see it, I look, I, I, I bring it out, I leave it in front of me, I spy from it. But it's not that I really want to keep it forever. And like recently, I, I donated all my collection of flat beefs to a Shiraz museum. Yes. Uh, I mean, not a museum, they are building a museum for my flat beef collection in Shiraz. And I, that was my dream to give this to Shirazi people because that's the land of tribal people. Wow. So, so if you the lock that you carry around in your pocket, and that you look at, and that you get inspired by, for example, something you might have found, if you if you happen to lose that in a cab, do you freak out, or do you? Oh yes, you do. I would, so, so you I are possessive. Like I would be very sad. Uh, yes, it ha- it hasn't happened that many times, uh, but a couple of times that it has happened, I have been very sad, uh, very upset, in fact. Harvey's, you've been so generous with your time. Let, let me ask you about your, before I let you go, about your endurance and, and your drive. I mean, you, it is incredible. You, you've never stopped. You've never stopped creating, teaching, speaking, influencing, doing your work. Uh, can you? Would, you? would you be able to put your feet up and stop? <laughs> That's a question my wife keeps asking me. Say, when you want to go for a holiday, like vacation. You have never gone, gone for a vacation. I, I, in fact, that's true. My vacation has been my field works or my, you know, my researches in museums around the world or uh, uh, other workshops. But anyway, 
No, I enjoy this life, and I, I don't, I don't regret for for what I've done. Of course, I'm now uh, slowing down. It's not like like the years before, but still, I'm working. I get up at six o'clock in the morning. I I work through through the day and until the end of the whenever I have to, I have energy uh, at night. Let, let me ask you it another way. Um, what, in terms of what is this work about for you now? Do you feel, this may sound like an absurd question, and I don't mean it disrespectfully, because many would believe that you've made not just one, but many masterpieces. Do you feel you've created your masterpiece, whether it's Heach or the Persepolis Wall or any of your works, or is part of the fact that you stay so committed to working a testament that you're still searching for something? I'm still after my masterpiece. I haven't done it yet, Jian. I really, people say so, but uh, I always feel I could have done better. When I finish a, a work, even the Persepolis or other pieces of that, uh, that category, I, after it was done, I was kind of sad because I felt I could have done it better. So I don't know if this is true with other artists or not, but I, I, I feel I, I can still do better than what I did before. You know that a lot of people would be astounded to think that you, you, you don't think you've created masterpieces. Well, I mean, that, that's the kind of people. But anyway, uh, I, don't, I don't want to call masterpieces. I, I, it's like your children. Uh, to some eyes, some of my works are masterpieces, some lesser. But to my eye, they are all okay. They are all my creations. How important is legacy to you? I, very important. The legacy, of course, is very important. I feel I'm I'm, I'm mission to do this this life, and uh, and I really I, I I enjoy it. I don't have any regrets for it. I don't want to. If I had to be born again, I think I would continue the same life because I'm happy with the life I have had, in the, in spite of all the problem and difficulties. But do you? Do you care if you are considered one of the greats ever of, of the art world? Is that important to you? I mean, you well, are. Well, I don't, I don't know. I don't, I don't say I, I don't care, but uh, it's, it's, a, it's a history or the time or the people who, who are the judge of these things, uh, not me. You know, you know, none of us is around forever. <laughs> As the man who popularized <laughs> thinking around nothingness, how, how do you deal with the notion of mortality? <laughs> exactly. I mean, nothingness is is a, the life here and after, and is a continuation. Uh, I think nothingness has existed as long as man existed, as as long as uh, human being existed, and always have 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 occupied the mind of a man throughout the history. It's not only me and others, but. I have managed to give it a volume, give, give it a shape, and give it a life. Give it a visual life. But it is, uh, does mortality mean something different to you now than it would have meant 50 years ago? No, I don't think so. We don't think of mortality. We often think of uh, life and continuation. Uh, I mean, seldom people who are depressed think of mortality. Uh, and I've never been depressed. I don't know what depression means. I mean, I have never been depressed in my life. Even during the bad time, I, I don't get depressed. I get, in fact, uh, when, when I am given hard time, I get more anxious, I get more creative, I want to make up for it, and I get, I, I'm busier.
You know, I came across something you said a few years ago. You said, I want to remain a student until the last day of my life. Uh, Pavis Tanavali, what, what do you feel you still have to learn? Uh, I would say exactly the same thing, John. Today, I would say the same thing. Every day, I learn something. This learning is not, uh, is not all by big things, but some small thing could be, and that brings me some satisfaction. Anytime I learn something, uh, that's, that's my happy moment. A final question to you. Um, dear Pavis, and I thank you again so much for doing this and so much for the time you've given us. Um, and I guess I ask this as somebody who, you know, we of Iranian background and for those of us around the world who are of Iranian descent, you've lived in Canada now for the for the last 30 years. You have been celebrated here as well. And you just had your first solo exhibition only last year in Vancouver. Um but I want to ask you as a final question, what does Iran mean to you today? Well, you see, Iran remains the same. Iran is within me, is not out of me. And uh, no matter where I am, uh, Iran is inside me and my, my mind is working with Iran. So uh, I don't forget Iran, but I live here in Vancouver and I am I, happy that I live here now, especially I have a good studio, good life, and and Vancouverites have been changed so much as far as art goes. And I think that I see a bright future for Vancouver as a city. Uh, they already are planning good shows, good outdoor exhibition. When I came here, I was amazed that I was in fact shocked that in such a beautiful city, there is no public art, no artwork in the city. But today, they are beginning to do that. And uh, things will work out here, too. Pavis John, I, I cherished our last interview many years ago, and I'm going to cherish this one as well. I thank you so much for this. Thank you, John. Thank you for doing this. Khodafis. Khodafis. Pavis Tanavoli. He's a sculptor, painter, scholar, art collector. His works have sold for millions of dollars and are on permanent display at major international institutions such as the British Museum, the Met, the Tate Modern. He's the author of numerous books on art and artists in Iran and the Middle East, and his forthcoming book is called A Virus for Collecting. And Parviz Tanavoli joined us from Vancouver, Canada today. sounds of Sina Batai on the sound tour coming out of that interview with uh, Parviz. Uh, I'm rejoined here by the fabulous Keon, Captain Reza Guvishaya. Uh, that was just, a, that's what an honor that was. I, I, I you know, uh, there are some interviews that I, as I'm doing them, I think I'm going to remember this forever. And I, I 
truly adore him. His spirit, his energy, his contribution, his legacy, his his gentle nature. Uh, and I, I am so proud that we have him uh, as an Iranian as a, and as a Canadian. Um, and uh, thanks again to Pavis Tanavoli. Kian, you're nodding. Oh, no, I'm just everything you said I agree with. I could, phys- I could feel his gentle soul as he's speaking. I just yeah. adore that man without ever meeting him. Shai Jun? Um, actually, I just want to say, actually recite one phrase by Hafez that always... When I uh, s- when I see Parviz Tanawali's artwork, I it reminds me of that phrase. It says, "Jahan o kar jahan jumle hich dar hich ast." Hazar bar man in nukte kardam tahqiq. Beautifully said. Thank you, Shah. Uh, Captain Reza, I don't think you can top that. So I think you should <laughs> just know, no. say nothing. Just shut your mouth. Nothing. Nothing. Isn't that what it's all about? Heech. Heech. By the way, Kiana, that translates, as I understand it, to the blender has more blackberries in it. That's what, uh, <laughs> what? Shai just said. I didn't get any of that. Uh, exactly. I have no yeah, idea. Yeah, no, it's, uh, no. <laughs> I didn't catch the. So what is, what's the meaning behind his Heech um, artwork? Well, uh, I didn't want to ask him directly because, honestly, he's been asked that since 1965. Okay. Uh, the heat translates to nothingness. Right. I was joking about the blackberries. That's, I, I just ignored it because uh, it was not funny. <laughs> it translates to nothingness. Okay. And um, it, I, it's sort of postmodern. It, you, you know, I don't want to speak for him here, and and so I will um, point people towards places on the internet where he can, where you'll hear, you know, okay. can read about his explanation. But one of the ways he says it is, um, there's if in front of you is something, mm-hmm. but um, if you take that away, uh, what's in front of you? Hechi. Heat nothing, but there's still something in front of you, which is nothing. Um. So he uses that as a metaphor, but also he speaks about nothingness as being um, uh, something that's a, a, a major element of our poetic ancestry too. That 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 idea keeps cropping up in in different parts of our. Uh, um, literature and our poetry and so that's where Heech originally came from mm. I think we need to pass around a joint to really understand the true meaning of <laughs> Thank you, I'm Keon. kidding no no <laughs> I, I first noticed his work in not front the first of <laughs> to say that though I'm sure about yeah. uh, there's uh, about uh, about nothingness listen I before I you know we've got to get to I, I there's somebody in Australia waiting on the line uh, let's shift gears from Pavis Tanavoli to our Monday feature every Monday she is the woman behind the popular Inglisi Farsi Instagram account and she's fast becoming our resident wordsmith here on Rook teaching us Persian proverbs one painful episode at a time all the way from Australia it's Mona from Melbourne hello hello Thanks for having me <laughs> what is the latest from Australia what's happening on the front lines in down under front lines and um, we're springing into spring I hear you guys are going into autumn <laughs> Yes, we're just bundling up and putting on scarves and winter coats and you're starting to wear tank tops. Is that the idea? That's great. Well, occasionally Melbourne is hit and miss sometimes, um, but we're evolving um, yeah, into summer and spring. And um, unfortunately, that leads to a lot of pollen. Um, and I'm not sure if you guys suffer from hay fever, but it's not a very good time to be sneezing and sniffling around the place. Because so, um, people think yes. you have, you have the, the corona. <laughs> 
right. indeed yeah. indeed we've just cleared it we're on our 14th day of zero but um yeah we don't want to be sniffling and sneezing you guys in australia you figured it out zero <laughs> zero covid right yeah, well, um, we just had another outbreak in Adelaide, but um, Melbourne is COVID-free for the time being. <laughs> is there some way the Persians of Australia can take credit for this? Um, I wish we could claim it. Unfortunately, not. <laughs> right, right. Okay, uh, let's get to the business at hand. Uh, Mona from the Inglisi Farsi Instagram account. Mona from Melbourne. What are you teaching us today? So, um, today I was going to ask you guys about a word that has multiple meanings. So, what we call a homonym. Um, so, one of these, uh, one of the words in the Persian po- uh, proverbs of, of the week um, has multiple meanings. And I found that in the Persian language, I could only find a few words that have this. Um, so, I was wondering if you knew of this word that has multiple meanings. It's spelt the same. Um, it can be an animal, but it also has two other meanings. Um, and I was just going to put it out there. Maybe uh, Shai and Reza could even help us out with this one. Okay. Um, can you H- hang on a word? second? Let me just set this up. You've already done a good job of it. But, but each <laughs> week, Mona from Melbourne brings us a proverb of the week. And what you're telling us is the the centerpiece, the subject of today's proverb is a word that is a homonym. It has different meanings. The one word has a few different meanings. Yes? That's correct. Okay. And we're supposed to guess what? The word? Yeah, do you think that you you can think of a word that has multiple meanings? And is it also an animal? And, okay. <laughs> have to start going through the animals. Or is that too challenging? Sag, gorbe. Shotor mor. Shotor No, that was last week. All right, right. So let's see. Uh, I, I'm going to open this up to Shia and, and Reza as well. Can you think of an animal with a word? Yes, of course. Okay, Shia? I can give you a hint. In the morning, you can drink it. You drink an animal? Is that an animal? <laughs> like, like she, like oh, sheer, sheer, sheer. There you go. Sheer. All right. Ding, ding. Okay. Correct. All right. So right. Um, the homonym for uh, for this word. Sorry, is let me um, explain sheer. to non Farsi folks. So, so sheer means milk, milk, but it also means lion and courage. And it, uh, well, sheer should. Yeah, okay. yeah, yeah. Sheer is yon. All right, go ahead. <laughs> it, also, it also means tap and faucet, surprisingly enough. So, That's right. Um, yeah, right. so I couldn't think of any other words that have as many meanings. The only one I could think of was Beshkan, but um, <laughs> sheer. <laughs> um, so, so basically half the words in the entire vocabulary in Farsi are sheer. <laughs> basically. <laughs> sheer, sheer, sheer. All right, all right. Fabulous. Okay, so now the proverb. So the proverb is, I know that um, you have a lot of American guests on your show, on Rook, um, and uh, currently there is um, a lot of... Uh, uh, it's a bit of a turbulent time and this saying, this Persian proverb um, talks about, well, sort of highlights that. So um, we can talk about currently in America, Ajab Shir Tushire, which means that... Um, wait, 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 don't, t- don't tell us what it means. We're going to guess okay. what it means. Because uh, <laughs> I, I, now Reza and Shai, you know what that means, right? Okay, so Ajab Shir, what, say it again? Ajab Shir Tushire. Ajab Shir Tushire. Uh, how much... It, uh, Wow, the milk is really in the milk. No. Uh, <laughs> I, just, I just imagine lions attacking each other. She like to she, yes. Lion it's to like lion. a it's like a would that be it? Like the it's Wait a minute, it's a proverb though. Oh. What proverb? It's like it has to have a meaning beyond just the translation. You got it. Ajab shir to shir means like it's uh 
everyone's at each other's throats. Is that what it means? Yeah. Well, like it's obviously the lion meeting, right? It's not. <laughs> it's not faucet to faucet <laughs> or milk to milk. milk, to milk. So it's ajab shir to shir to shir. Yes. Shir to shir. So it's Inside, lion in lion. Lion in lion. Yeah. yeah. Ajab lion in lion. What does that mean? <laughs> but what is? I don't understand what it, what they're getting at like though. Like khar to khar, like you know, uh-huh. craziness, right? Oh yeah, khar to khar. What yeah. is the, the more uh, the exactly. more polite version of khar to khar? Exactly. I was actually gonna. I was actually trying to keep it opulent for you, Kia. Right. Right. That's right. Opulence. I think I like I like the don't go together. I like I like the less appropriate version. Okay, so 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 uh, now uh, Mona, I'm going to ask uh, Groovy Shia to use Ajab Shia Tushira in a in a sentence, and you can tell us if he he's using it correctly. To to be honest with you, because I am not a polite person, I usually say Ajab Khar to Khariya. But but so does it mean the same thing as Khar to Khariya? Yes, yes, yes. Khar to Khariya means like. Chaos, crazy, yes. yeah, yeah. Sure, yeah. same as yeah. Uh-huh, yeah. Uh-huh. Okay, all right. So you can use that a lot for all yes. kinds of things. Yes. And do you, do, uh, Mona from Melbourne, have you figured out where this this saying had its origins? Um, actually, no. It, there, I couldn't find the literature to sort of support it. I think it's something that's just evolved naturally with time, um, especially in households with multiple children. Or <laughs> um, I think it just means general chaos. <laughs> Well, that's uh, we will um, we will use that interchangeably uh, with khar to khar. Ajab shir to shir. I like the fact that we have an alternative to khar to khar. Khar to khar for those uh, who don't speak Persian is what Kian? A donkey. So I guess you know to ask me to, ask. to me Rezo is more of a donkey and Shia <laughs> is a shear. So you know it's like can you say khar to shira? Can you use both? Kian, that is you've lost just. You've gone anti-opulent on this uh, episode again. I told you. Oh, it happens once in a while. Mona from Melbourne, thank you so much. We'll be following you on Instagram at Inglisi Farsi, and we'll see you next week. My pleasure, Gian. Thanks for having me. Bye-bye. Bye. Bye. That is Mona from Melbourne, everyone, and the proverb of the week, Ajab Shia Tushire. Uh, which really isn't actually a proverb. That's yeah. at the end of the day. Yeah. I think it's a, it's just a little saying. But uh, okay, we'll call it a proverb for the fun of it. Yes. All right. Listen, uh, Ponta the artist has walked in. Ajab uh, <laughs> Tushiri. <laughs> can you say that of about course. a person? All right. Of course. All right. Yeah. <laughs> Sorry, Ponta the artist. I don't know Very why. Very much applies here. Uh, thank you, the fabulous Keon. Thank you, uh, Captain Reza. Thank you, Groovy Shia. Thanks again to Arjang Zandnia. Arjang Zandnia. We cannot do this without folks like Arjang who are there to support us and support the Iranian community in the in the diaspora. Arjang, the entrepreneur, the businessman, the creative mind, the art collector. His latest venture is called Nahid. Corporation, uh, a high-rise development company dedicated to giving back to the community through safe, sustainable, vibrant urban communities that enhance the standard of living for all the residents. Thanks for your help, Arjang and Nahid Corp with this Parvis Tanavoli episode. This is full time for Rook for today. Our website, of all things Rook, is rookmedia.com, rookmedia.com, where you can see the latest Rook read from Thoughtful Megine and where you can link to all of our episodes on all of our platforms and subscribe there and find our patrons page where you can support us if you do wish. We really appreciate that. 
Thanks to the amazing team who put this show together each week. Producer Susan, Ponta the Artist, Thoughtful Nagin, the fabulous Keon, Savvy Roham, Alaya Mertad, English Muhammad, Captain Reza and Groovy Shia. And thank you to all of you out there supporting us and sharing our content. Find me on Instagram at Gian Gomeshi. And as ever, remember, Ajab Shia Tushirasi. Mizun Bashi. Bashi.